I am Camille Johnson, and this is Finding the Floor. Stories and reflections of midlife motherhood, family, and finding meaning in it all. Join me as I share a little piece of my life and figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Hey everyone, welcome to Finding the Floor. This is episode 81, and today we're going to talk about the book, How to Be Yourself by Ellen Henriksen. Today is going to be part one of a two-part podcast because there's just so much to cover in this book, but it's going to be great. The subtitle, I guess, of the book, How to Be Yourself, so it's like, How to Be Yourself Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety by Ellen Henriksen, Ph.D. Okay, this book I discovered probably three years ago and I started reading through it and I don't consider myself a person with like capital S as she calls it, social anxiety, like I haven't been diagnosed with social anxiety, but... And I think all of us are probably in this place where there are situations where I find myself like overthinking and just feeling socially anxious. And what I loved about this book was that, first of all, if you get this book, if you have the chance to get the audio version, I think just the way the author her tone comes across. She's very fun and kind of a little bit sarcastic and down to earth. So it's just like a fun, the author is reading the book. And so you get all her little asides and, you know, tonations and everything. So that's fun because I've done both. Like I read it and then I listened to it and I listened to it again. And then I've read it through a few times just to kind of get a feel of how to share it with you guys. But yeah, it's it's a really, really good book. And I was even brave enough to reach out to the author to see if she might be willing to do an interview. But I know I'm a super small podcast, so that may not happen. But one of my goals um, I've been trying to do lately is just to be a little bit braver. And that was one little step. And I remembered this, I think one of the stories, I think from the book Grit was about this guy who just tried to get as many no's as he can to be okay with getting no's. And because I think sometimes I get anxious about asking either guests to be on my show or um, putting myself out there. So my new thing is that I'm going to see, let's, I'm going to reach out and see how many no's I can get. <laughs> anyway, that's a total aside, but I guess it could be a little bit of socially anxious or not really sure, you know, about putting myself out there. Um, the other thing I noticed today as I was like looking up this book that Ellen Hendrickson has a website, which is ellenhendrickson.com. Um, and it's Hendrickson with an S-E-N. Um, 
And I'll have that reference on my website and I can even have it on the show notes uh, or on the episode description to make it easier for you guys. And she has all these free resources you can read. Obviously, she has her book, which I checked out of the library. You can buy, um, you can get uh, probably on Audible or anyway. So, but then she also has like a course that you can go through. And I really have been thinking a lot about how this would help teenagers for sure. I haven't gone through the course, but I am definitely tempted because she just has a lot of really good information and it's backed by all these studies and like that's fun to get all that information as well. So anyway, and that course is $297, but if you sign up for her newsletter, you get like a $50 off coupon. And I think she says that's like how much one session with her is. Um, so anyway, there's some information on her before we begin. Okay, the one thing I love about this book, going through it, well, okay, there's a lot of things I really liked about this book. One of the things was all the stories she brings in from clients she's had. And I don't know if she's changed the names or if she just asked permission to tell these stories, but... They're great, real stories about clients that she's had that she's helped, and she weaves them into the book in a very, like, relevant and cool way that, you know, keeps you engaged. Um, And then all of the studies that she kind of references to help you understand where social anxiety comes from and all that. And then... I guess the last thing, which I think is most important about this whole book, is that she's basically saying you don't need to change who you are when you have social anxiety. You just need to be like she's just trying to give you tools so that you're less anxious, so you can be more yourself. So basically, this idea of how to be yourself, when someone says that and you're nervous about going into a situation, She's going to give you tools so that you can do that your very best. Okay, so the one thing, um, I keep on saying the one thing. Okay, here's a thing because <laughs> she mentions a lot of things. So in this book, she mentions how actually social anxiety is a good thing. There are really good traits about being anxious and being very aware of what's going on socially. And it goes back to like the beginning of like civilization. First, uh, she says social anxiety buys group harmony or essentially what we're doing is we're learning how to play well with others. And then the other thing she says, the second thing about social anxiety, it's good for individual security. So if we're getting along with everybody in the group, then we are part of the group. So we're, you know, back in the early days, if you're part of a group, you knew you were protected. And even today, you know, we want to make sure we're cool and part of a group that we like and it hurts and it feels lonely when we get banished or ostracized or those are all things that are good about having a little bit of social anxiety. And she says, 
quote, social awareness and behavioral inhibition are such useful traits in maintaining harmony and security that to mama nature, it's worth the risk of something going overboard. So what she's basically saying is um, it is better for us to at least have too much social anxiety than not enough or not any, because that is bad too, because then we're just like psychopaths and we don't care what anyone else thinks and we do whatever we want. And that also is not good either. So there is some great traits and just trying to like tamp down your anxiety or work through your anxiety is what she is trying to help you with in this book. And the one thing that I think is so great is she has a lot of clients who come to her and say, okay, I just want to fix this problem that is preventing me from either going to parties or for even just being social at all. And I want to fix it and then I'll be able to go out. And she's saying, actually, what you have to do is you have to live life and you slowly get rid of your social anxiety. Okay. So one thing she talks about, which I think is really helpful for anybody, even if you don't have any social anxiety, is the beginning of her subtitle, which is quieting your inner critic. Because we all have that voice in our head that's kind of like trying to keep us safe and warning us, but that sometimes it goes overboard. And so I'm going to talk about two of the techniques that she mentions in, which is basically like chapters four, five, and six of the book. And then I'll mention some other things next week as well to cover some other things that I thought would be really helpful. Again, I know I keep telling you this because I don't know, you guys have tons of time, right? To just read all these books. And since that's sort of what sometimes I do for these podcasts, but if you're looking for a book to read, and if you have anyone who either yourself is socially anxious or someone who might be socially anxious, this really is super practical and helpful. And I think it also helps like the empathy to understand when you personally, like I don't have tons of social anxiety, but I do it sometimes in certain situations. But then to also be empathetic and understand a little bit more why maybe someone else could have a really high social anxiety and what that looks like. And she even goes into sometimes the causes and how there's some genetics and then some um, environmental and all that stuff. And I'm not going to go into any of that. I'm just going to talk about kind of the why of social anxiety or like the big thing we're worried about as people. And then um, go into a couple of the two tools. Okay. So first, the big thing with people who are socially anxious, and I think this really is a lot of times with all of us. So she says, what we're mostly worried about when someone is really socially anxious, and I would say maybe even all of us at one point or or another, it's just this reveal. So yeah, it's the belief that there's something wrong with them. And if they go out with a big group of friends, it will become completely obvious. 
It could be a little thing or a big thing. She also says to remember it is something we think is wrong with us. She says, even though our perceived flaws feel so real, they are either not true or only true to a degree no one cares about. And then she also makes a really good point. She says, it's only in a public context that these mistaken beliefs become salient. (laughs) And she goes on, heck, that's why it's called social anxiety. Without an audience, there's no chance of a reveal. She says, whatever you fear, it boils down to one thing. I am not good enough. And furthermore, everyone will see. And I honestly think that even if you are not a type of person who like can't go out in public or like can't function, there are definitely smaller S things that we might feel super anxious about. Maybe it's going to a big party where you don't know anybody and, you know, don't know how to have a conversation or worried about how you're going to look or all these little things that boil down to, I am not good enough, and furthermore, everyone will see. And so she gives a really fun and easy example that I think many people can relate to, how social anxiety can kind of just jump up at you. So she talks about a story of when she was grocery shopping. And the other thing I want to point out about Ellen Hendrickson is that she talks about how her research has been because she has been a socially anxious person. And so she talks about usually research is me search, like I'm trying to find this out for myself. And so she kind of is like a fellow traveler along this road of social anxiety. And so she struggled with it for years. So she has worked through it, which is why this is her thing, her that she's really good at talking about. Okay, so she tells the story of when she signed up to to be the person who get the snacks for her son's co-op preschool. And at first she didn't think much about it, but going and getting like a week's worth of snacks for this co-op, she'd have to go in and get like two carts full of food. And so she went around and got the second cart or the first cart and parked it and then went at like customer service for them to watch it and then goes back around and she realizes her second cart is going to have only milk, bananas, and apples. And for some reason, that started triggering her social anxiety and she started just getting way into her head. She had to get 40 bananas and like 30 apples and she had 10 gallons of milk. And she's walking around. She's like, what are people going to think? Just at this time where she's like kind of in her head about, oh my gosh, I've never bought 40 apples or they just think I'm crazy. All I eat is bananas and apples. And a friend of hers came by and was like, hey, nice apples. And it startled her so much. And the friend realized that like she was really scared. And then she just was like, oh, I was just so in my head. And just at this moment, she then picks up her head and notices everybody else in the store and that nobody else is paying attention to her, that sometimes all these worries about, oh my gosh, what are they going to say about me? Am I this weirdo buying all this milk and bananas? No one is really paying attention. I can totally relate. 
in the whole grocery store thing. And I've noticed since reading this book and just like how I get really anxious when I'm checking out at the grocery store because I usually have a super giant cart full of food. And I'm always just like feeling bad that I'm like, I don't know, taking people's time and it's gonna, takes me a while to check out. And I don't know if I've always felt this way or if I started feeling this way when I had someone ask me as I was waiting in line to check out, like, wow, is that like a month's worth of food? (laughs) And I was like, actually, no, this is just a week's worth of food. And I'm going to probably come back tomorrow because I'll forget something So I just am like, yeah, this is a week's. I have five kids and they eat a lot of food. (laughs) So it's just funny how I've noticed, I don't know, ever since that comment or before that comment, as I coming around that I'm like, my giant cart is just full. And even like I shop at Aldi and they like fly you through the checkout. It's like so fast. And still, I have this like worry. First of all, like, I don't know if it's just me or if every time I like get in line, there's usually not very many people in line. And then I start having to unload all my stuff on the the belt thingy. And then the line just starts like piling up like everyone I don't know we all came in around the same time and they're all checking out and so they have to usually stop and open another checkout place that happens a lot when I'm in line or you know there's two checkouts and everyone's going to the other one because they're like look at the lady with all that food what's wrong with her Isn't it funny? So I just think that example of her being worried about what people are going to think at the grocery store, she says that's kind of a normal thing, like being being worried about that. Now I'm just, I don't know if I just still have that. And I just, I mean, obviously I keep shopping for my family, but um, I just think it's something funny. Like I wonder if I'm thinking I'm wasting people's time What are people thinking about me? There's just this like nervous feeling of me and my giant cart of food. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's just funny. All right. So she talks about how we have this inner critic. And she, again, starts with that story about the grocery store and which I can totally relate to. And then she goes in and talks about the inner critic and how... The inner critic is a voice in our head that many times is trying to keep us safe, but also pushing us to do our best. And for socially anxious individuals, instead of being like a smaller voice, she says it wields a megaphone. Quote, she says, ironically, it thinks it's being helpful trying to keep us safe and at the same time being super harsh. Your inner critic wants you to do better, to be perfect, so it pushes you to perform while at the same time undermining your faith in your ability. So in response to this inner critic worried about what people are thinking, she suggests to do what she calls a social anxiety mad lib. 
So when you're in a socially a social situation where you feel anxious, like being at the grocery store, it will become obvious that I am fill in the blank. What my inner critic says is wrong with me. So for Ellen Hendrickson, she mentions when I'm at the store with a cart full of milk and bananas, it will become obvious that I am a weirdo. Or for me, when I am standing in line at the checkout with my super full cart, it will become obvious that I'm a glutton or buy way too much food and I'm taking way too much time and people have to will wait a really long time. Anyway, I don't know if that works, but that's kind of the idea. The reveal, like, what is it? I eat too much food? <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny. Okay. So she says, try to understand what your fear is in the first place. And she also mentions that sometimes it can be a f- strong feeling and you may not know where that comes from and try to translate that lurch in your stomach, what that might be can also help. All right, so we have our inner critic and the inner critic is trying to keep us safe and is usually uh, can be really loud for some people. And I think also maybe can be really loud in some situations, right? Social situations and maybe not all social situations for everybody, but maybe certain situations where you're feeling lacking or uncomfortable like uh, again like something's going to be revealed whether you have to give a talk or a speech or you have to organize something or you have to give small talk all of those things can be this idea of the reveal so she talks about how the inner critic has what they call if you're looking like if you have a situation that's coming up and you are dreading it and you're kind of going through all these scenarios in your head. And then afterwards, there's also this overanalyzing of what happened afterwards and mostly pulling apart everything that you did wrong. For instance, I was just recently talking with my son. He was having some issues with his roommate and we were kind of talking through ways that he could talk to him about it. And so there were always just like, well, what if he says this? What if he says it? And like, you just don't know. Sometimes you're just going through all these scenarios. And a lot of times you just need to have the conversation or go to the situation instead of worrying about what might happen and what might happen. So the other thing she calls is like the post-event processing But she says, with the inner critic, it's hyper-focused on the stuff gone wrong. And Ellen Hendrickson writes, in each case before or after, the inner critic puts us under the magnifying glass. But it's magnifying glass that only enlarges, it also distorts. And she goes on, ultimately, in one of the cruel ironies of of social anxiety, all our preparatory freaking out, And after the fact, self-flagellation not only doesn't help, it actually sets us back, which is the exact opposite of what we're going to do. Okay, so here we go into the tools. I know we're almost like way at the end of this podcast and I haven't even mentioned all these tools, but you had to do a little bit of the background. So she says, 
First, you're going to challenge your inner critic with two different tools. One is called replace and the other one embrace. In replace, we are going to argue back to the inner critic and with embrace, we'll make peace and extend compassion. So with replace, the first thing that she says is super helpful is to specify, specify, specify. Who is going to think I'm a weirdo or whose time am I wasting? Who is going to think that I buy way too much food? Or even if your kids are like saying, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this thing. They're going to think I'm so like weird or so whatever. And you, if you can get them to mention, well, who are you worried about? And get them to be very, very specific, then you can actually work with that. Like, who is it? Instead of using words like, everybody's going to be doing this, or um, I'm the only one. And you can just be very specific. All right, well, who are you talking about? Who do you know that is doing this? You have to be careful when you hear your inner critic. Let's use words like always, never, everybody, and nobody. And I know this has also been really, really helpful with my kids when they're like freaking out about something or um, like everybody's doing this and then you can be very specific. And I always say also when they're freaking out and saying, I'm never going to do that again or they always do this. And I always just say, Always and never is a really big word. Let's be a little bit more specific. When do they do this? What are you having a hard time with? So she says, be very specific when you start freaking out about, let's say, an event you're having to go to or something you don't want to do socially. Be specific on what you're worried about or who you're worried about. And then she says, once you get specific, then you can say to your inner critic, how bad would that be? What she calls this is decatastrophizing. I think it's also, again, super helpful with your kids. So how bad would that be? I'll use my oldest son for an example again because he has been getting uh, auditioning and doing interviews to get into the music education program at BYU, which I didn't realize they only accept 12 students a year. And it's a big school. And so... He tried out last August and didn't get in. He really wants to teach high school or college level choir. And this is how you like get to do that. And so we were talking through like, he was like, what are you worried about? And then the question would be, well, I'm worried about not getting in. And so we, we did go to that. How bad would that be? What is the worst that can happen? And so we decided to just play that through for a minute because that helped him like help his anxiety to go down and stay instead of saying, oh, that's not really, don't worry about that. You can just go there for a second and answer those questions. What's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I don't get into the program. Okay, so what would you do? And I think the next question is also super helpful because when your inner critic, because I think we can be super imaginative on about what is the worst that can happen, then you go to the question of what are the odds and how would you cope? So for instance, with my son, what are the odds? Well, 
he already didn't make the program once. And depending on how many people try out, those are really the odds. There's only 12 people that make the program. So there could be a good likelihood that he may not make the program. And so then how would you cope? And so we came up with a couple like plan A, plan B, and maybe there'll be a plan C with what he would like to do. You could change your major, you could go to a different school. So if this is really what you wanted to do, that's something you could do. So there's all these different ways that you can think about the problems that actually aren't even happening. But when your brain's offering you all these worst case scenarios, then you come up with the next thing like, what are the odds and how would you cope? Now, I remember in Dale Carnegie's book, How to Stop Worrying, that was one of the techniques was, what's the worst that can happen? What are the odds? And just kind of like making it a little more concrete for the things you're worrying about. And I know sometimes when you're anxious about something, especially social situations, um, like she said at the beginning, usually what you end up freaking out about isn't what happens or something that I'm worried about. For instance, like when I go away, they're like, I remember going away on my cruise. I think I mentioned this um, in another podcast, but like I was worried about either my kids getting in an accident, the house catching on fire, us getting hurt, something like that happening. And you worry about all these things and sort of and prepare for them. But then some of the things you don't even think about worrying about happens, like a pipe broke in our bathroom because it was really cold right before we left and then it warmed up. So I just think it's funny how when you catastrophize, it is good to be specific and then really answer those questions. Be specific. What's the worst that can happen? What are the odds? And then how would I cope? I know when my kids don't want to do something like calling on the phone or asking their teacher about something, I usually always say, well, what's the worst thing can happen? They'll just say no. You can at least try. And so sometimes that helps. Sometimes that doesn't. (laughs) But again, so that is what we call replace. First, you're going to specify, specify, specify. Who are you really worried about thinking that you're a weirdo? And then what's the worst thing can happen? What are the odds? And then how would you cope? Okay, the next tool, what she calls is embrace. And um, at the beginning of this chapter, she talks about two different types of swim coaches. She says, imagine you're coming to pick up your child from swim lessons and you come across a coach who's just yelling at his kid like you're so dumb why are you kicking like that da 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 berating the kid she says in her book you know you're looking around thinking what how can this guy be saying this this is just a little kid and then she says and then you come across another teacher who notices a child isn't kicking right and he says hey buddy straighten your legs so you can kick from your hips that's going to help you better all right, good, fix that. And, you know, making sure he fixes it, but is kind and supportive to get him to swim. And she says, what child do you think is going to come back the next week? Most likely the child that was just berated is going to go home and throw away his or her goggles and say, I'm never swimming again. 
but the other will has had a supportive environment to help him fix mistakes and to correct them. And so that's in the essence what embrace is. It's using self-compassion on yourself because most of the time what happens is our inner critic is like that super harsh coach and is always like, why did you do that way? Or I couldn't believe you did that. All those like harsh things that we say to ourselves, that's what the inner critic, that's like that coach that is trying to shame you or just not helpful, (laughs) right? I mean, the coach is trying to help the person swim but the technique is not actually helpful. Like no one really likes to be yelled at. But then, so she says, at its essence, embrace is simply giving yourself the same support, warmth, and kindness you would get from a good friend or that you would offer a good friend. Self-compassion is about creating that same sort of supportive, kind, encouraging environment from which you can gather the courage to choose wisely. Um, And she says there's three parts to embrace. First, mindfulness. Second, self-kindness. And third, an awareness that we are all in this together. So how she describes mindfulness, and I've noticed that this is a tool definitely used a lot in life coaching, is this idea that um, you are almost like watching a movie of your life or more or less your thoughts that you're having. So instead of thinking, I screwed up so bad, mindfulness is going from that to I am having a thought that I really screwed up so bad. And just that little shift kind of gives way to this idea that, oh, that's just a thought And maybe that's not necessarily true. And she says, which I love, is remember, feelings aren't facts. Thoughts are transient, not truth. And so as you are starting to freak out or your inner critics being super critical about what you're doing, she says you can then, oh, I'm just having this thought that people are going to be upset that I'm wasting their time at the grocery store because I have this super large cart. Well, maybe that is true. Maybe I will be. Maybe people will have to wait a little bit longer, but that's okay. Everybody knows that sometimes people have a bigger cart and an empty cart, and I need to buy this food for my family, and I'm feeding my family. So you almost like talk to yourself in a kind, supportive way when you have this inner critic giving you these not helpful thoughts. You become more aware and then again, you have that kindness with yourself and almost like, yeah, I can see why that would bother you. There's a lot of people, maybe they're making these faces, even though you don't really know what that means. They could, it could have nothing to do with you. I could see how it would be an anxious place or an anxious time, but that's okay. We're just going to check out and not worry about what other people are thinking. And everybody who has a large family knows what it's like to have a giant cart of food. <laughs> 
So she says there's lots of ways to also get into more mindful situation when you're like really, really in your head. Um, she says she uses the technique five, four, three, two, one, five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, and one that you can taste. Or just mindful breathing, mindful listening, just like tuning into what's actually going on and just kind of like putting your head up and getting out of your head. And then she says the best thing you can do to like embrace what your inner critic is saying, she says, you think about what it is your inner critic is trying to protect you from, address it, and then still be brave and move along. So when you don't, let's say, want to go to a big party because I'm not going to know anybody and it's going to be, I'm going to feel uncomfortable and I won't know what to say. As the technique of embrace, you could almost think, okay, that makes total sense. It does feel uncomfortable going to a big party where you don't know anybody. And then you could almost, then she suggests you can use both techniques. So you First, have compassion with yourself. Yeah, I see that. But we're going to, we need to go anyway. And then you can almost say, okay, well, what are we really worried about? Be specific. And what is the worst that can happen? Well, if that happens, how, what are the odds and how would I cope? And so for a situation, you could be like, well, maybe I wouldn't know what to say. Okay, what are the odds of you not knowing what to say? You could at least say, how's the weather? Okay, and then how would you cope if you don't even know what to say? Maybe you simply compliment somebody. Just have a couple ideas in your back pocket for when you're in a big group and don't know what to say. So those are the two tools that she begins with at the first part of the book to help you address some of the times where your inner critic is kind of going crazy and is telling you that you shouldn't do something or getting in your head and preventing you from doing what you need to do. So again, we have replace and embrace. And replace is when you are specific, you think about what's the worst that can happen, what are the odds, and how would I cope? And then with embrace, you're going to use mindfulness. Like, oh, I'm having this thought that um, everyone thinks I'm a weirdo. <laughs> but maybe that's not true. And it's okay if everyone thinks I'm a weirdo. I'm not a weirdo. You're not a weirdo. And just talk to yourself like a really good friend. So I love how she finishes up the last part of this part of the book. And she says, the inner critic only wants what's best for you, but lets you know in an ineffective way. So reason with it. Tell it how strong you are and remind it that kindness trumps criticism. Okay, you guys. Seriously, this book really is so great. And if you have, especially if you have kids, who are really socially anxious because I feel like there are more now since the pandemic started. I think this will give you lots of helpful 
tools. And also, even if you're like a little bit socially anxious, I think it just gives you lots of tools. Okay, so again, thanks for listening, you guys, and I will talk to you next week. All right, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions, come by findingthefloor.com where I will have show notes and links for anything I've mentioned today. Special thanks to Seth Johnson for creating and performing the theme music. Come back next week and thanks for listening. 